All right. Hey, before we jump in this morning, uh, let's tell Joel how great of a job he's doing uh, these first couple months in his new job. And Joel uh, started back in, uh, it feels like I'm underwater here somehow. Um, Joel started, maybe it's just me, I've been sick, um, back in May, just been doing a great job leading both family ministry and missional communities. So thank you, Joel. Um, my name is Brandon. If you're new, uh, welcome. I serve as lead pastor at Midtown. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus uh, chapter 40. Uh, so if you're not uh, a Bible person, you didn't win like Bible drills in Christian school growing up, Exodus is the second book. You can go to your table of contents, go to the very end. This is actually the last chapter of uh, the book of Exodus. So Exodus 40, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a blue and white copy around you. Feel free to grab that and use that. Um, only five verses this morning. That's all we're going to cover in Exodus. So, hear these words. The very end of the book of Exodus, the author Moses writes this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we come to the end, and it's kind of sad. We've spent almost a year off and on in the book of Exodus, and it's such a sweet book, and we said this, this story is not just history. This is the story of our lives as well, and um, so I feel like we're kind of saying goodbye to a friend, but uh, this is, uh, in this last chapter, the, the tabernacle has been completed, so just kind of uh, the, the cliff's notes of chapters 37, 38, and 39, they did it, right? If you go back to uh, verse 33, uh, it says this, Moses finished the work. The work was done. The tabernacle was completed according to God's design. And now uh, we look back and we see in this last uh, chapter, in these last couple of verses, actually, just a, a looking back kind of retrospectively and summarizing and tying together the loose ends. Like, right, like you, you have a favorite TV show, that last episode at the end of the Netflix uh, series is in a way looking back and trying to tie together loose ends, and that's exactly what's happening here. It's a look back, and it's a look back to answer the fundamental question of Exodus, which we've said all along is, will God be with his people? That is the question of Exodus. Will God live and dwell and make his home among his people as he promised to do? If you remember, this stretches back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis 17 where God came to a man named Abraham, and he said, I will be your God. I'm going to make a nation out of you, and you will be my people. I will dwell among you. And so the resounding uh, answer to the end of Exodus is, yes, God will and has and is dwelling among his people. And it's encouraging. It ought to be encouraging to see the faithfulness of God. He does answer. He does complete and fulfill his promises. Right, what we see from Genesis 17 to Exodus 40, and these were meant to be read as one narrative, as one story, one book, not chopped up into, it's, it's an anthology. They're all meant to be read together. It's called the Torah or the Pentateuch, right? <clears throat> and what we see is this. 
There is nothing that can stop the presence of God from dwelling among his people. Not family dysfunction, which is the message of Genesis, one of the messages of Genesis, lots of family dysfunction. Not generational sin, not lying patriarchs, not scheming mothers, not oppressive regimes, not megalomaniac political leadership, not cowardice or unbelief or complaining or idolatry. God's glory fills the temple. God will dwell among his people. God is here, and it is glorious. That is the message of the end of Exodus as we look back. But there's also a looking forward here. This is not just the end of the story. This is actually the beginning of many new stories, right? Uh, As that famous 90s uh, theologian uh, slash band said, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end, right? There's, There's a rhythm here to the Bible. When one story ends, all kinds of stories are beginning. It's like blowing a dandelion. You blow it and it scatters out new stories. And that's exactly what we see here is a look forward <clears throat> to the future of the people of God. If you notice in every verse here in 34, 35, 36, 37, and 38, there's a mention of this glory cloud. Now, this is not the first time that we've uh, seen the glory cloud uh, or the fire. Chapter 13 of Exodus, chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 24, chapter 34, among other places, we see this mention of this cloud. And this cloud is representing the the manifest presence of God among his people. And and what we see in the cloud is God's commitment not just to dwell with his people, but also to guide his people through the journey. Now, I just want you to stop right here, because we can kind of just like gloss over this. Can you imagine, just like if we can in church use our imagination, right? Like I want you just to imagine what it must have been like, how awesome it must have been like to live in this camp where God's glory and his presence is in the center of the camp. In other words, God's presence is the organizing reality of life. And I want you just to think about how awesome it would be to have that level of clarity about every decision that you're going to make. Like, I want you to imagine, like, what it would look like for your entire day as a community, for your entire life to be organized around learning to just simply do this, recognize the presence of God, respond to the presence of God. That's all you had to do, literally. Think about it. Wake up in the morning, you go out to the edge of your tent, and you say, has the glory cloud left or not? If the answer is yes, you pack up your stuff and you follow. If it's no, you, you relax and you settle in, Right? Like, that's all you had to do. I mean, imagine, like, your life, how awesome that would be to just wake up and organize your life around recognizing and responding to God's presence in your life. Like, you're, you're, you're at the coffee shop with your friend, and you're pouring out your heart, I just don't know God's will for my life. You know, I don't know if I should date this guy, if I should move in with this person, if I should take this job. And you look outside of Starbucks or Hubbard and Craven, and the cloud's passing by. Okay, there's my answer. Let's go. Right? Like, you're, you're trying to figure out if you should start this business. Like, in, in the cloud, just, like, you're at the ball field. Like, should I, should, I, should I get my kids in this ball league? And the cloud lifts up and go, okay, that's clarity. I mean, that would be amazing, right? It's so awesome to have just, just to follow the cloud. But also, I want you to imagine how terrifying that level of clarity would have been as well. Like, 
There's no room for hedging. We like to hedge when it comes to God's will for our lives. It's like, well, maybe God's saying this. I don't know, right? And what we mean is, I don't like it, so I want to kind of be able to hedge instead of just follow what I know to be true, instead of just obey. So, you know, you, you just, like, imagine you just started dating someone. You come home from your first date, and you're excited, and the cloud lifts up and moves on. Oh, gosh, I'm going to start over again. I like this person, you know? Like, you, you just started a new business. You just raised all the capital for your new business, and the cloud lifts up and goes, and you've got to move to a new town, a new destination. You, you just bought that house that you've been eyeing in the neighborhood for a while, and you're about ready to start renovations. The cloud lifts and moves, and you have a decision to make. Do I follow or do I stay? I mean, it would be awesome, but it would also be terrifying to have to live with that level of clarity. What's interesting here to me about the presence of God, the glory of God, as we anticipate what's coming here in the rest of the Pentateuch, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is this little word here uh, in verse 36, journeys. So you see this word, which can mean travels or to set out on a journey, uh, and it appears throughout the book of Exodus, and actually it's going to appear more than 100 times in the rest of the Pentateuch. You're going to see this word, journey. What's interesting to me about this right here is that God doesn't just come to dwell with his people um, in the security and comfort of some kind of Eden or paradise. They, they don't get to settle in and God's glory drops and then the credits roll. Like what happens here is that God has drawn them into his presence to now lead them back out again on the road. You could title this message, matter of fact, God with us on the road. God with us on the journey. God draws us into relationship with him to send us back out on the road. That is the journey of the Christian life, actually. That is the heart of our a Christian spirituality, is that we live life on the road. We don't get to just settle in to comfort, security, ease. And notice here, God doesn't give them a compass. He doesn't give them a map. For some of us, this would freak us out. There's no strategic plan. No timetables. No, uh, you know, asset mapping. He's simply teaching them that I will be with you on the road. You're going to have to trust me on the road. See, this is the life of a Christian to learn to recognize and respond to the divine presence as he guides us and leads us. And again, we think it was easy for them, but it really wasn't. Like they had to pack up their gear. Every time they went out, they had to pack up. They had this massively complex sacrificial system that involved lots of blood. It wasn't as easy as we might think just to follow the glory cloud to the promised land. That's where they're heading, to Canaan, to claim their inheritance. But there's a way to look at this and, and go, man, I wish it was that easy for us today. I wish it was that easy that all we had to do was just simply follow cloud. I mean, that's the question that's been like bugging me all week. Like, why can't it be that easy for us? Maybe I'm just, I'm dumb and I'm slow and I, I need help. But I, I just like, I wish I had a cloud. But here's, here's the message of the rest of the Bible. And, here, and especially after, the, after Jesus comes. We have something better today 
than a cloud. We have something better today than fire. We have the divine presence not out in front of us, externalized in a cloud and fire. We have the divine presence living inside of us. And that changes everything. We have God himself, the glory cloud, so to speak. We read in John chapter 1, tabernacle among us. Jesus, the, the fullness of the glory cloud, God himself, takes on flesh. He eats, and he sleeps, and he weeps. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. He weeps, and he dies, and he rises again. And right before his resurrection, Jesus, with his disciples, gives them a gift. He promises that he's not going to abandon them but he's going to give them a gift to help them in their journey on the road. It's not going to be a cloud. It's not going to be fire. It's not going to be a tabernacle. Listen to what Jesus gives us in John chapter 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he dwells in you, and he will be in you. This is so encouraging. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not abandon you. I will come to you. That word helper there is the word paraclete. It's the Holy Spirit. The one literally who comes alongside to advocate for us. He goes on to say in John chapter 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, all the reality that God has for you. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and he will preach it to you. He will declare it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on to write now that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We have this glory and this fire living in us, 1 Corinthians 3. Individually, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. He has made a dwelling inside of you. And <coughs> corporately is the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6. We, together, plural, have the Spirit of God living in us. We are now the tabernacle. We are now the temple, God dwells with us. Now, what does that mean for us as we live life? I mean, I think this has implications for everything, right? Because we, like the Israelites, are living life on the road. We are journeying towards the promised land, journeying towards what the author of Hebrews, really Hebrews is just this extended commentary on the book of Exodus, and he says in multiple places, chapter 4, chapter 11, that we are journeying towards our rest. We are journeying towards our promised land. We are journeying towards a better country, a better city, whose designer, the writer of Hebrews says, is God himself. We too live lives on the road. As they did, in a way you could say, we too have this kind of refugee spirituality, 
We are on the move. We've left a home that is no longer our home, but we're not quite home yet, and we're moving towards the home that God is building for us, where he will be our God, and we will be his people, and we will live in intimacy with him forever. And here's the key. On that journey, on the road, as we live our lives now, we are learning to become a community that is recognizing and responding to the presence of God within us and around us. We are learning to become what what I'll just call a community of discernment. That's kind of the big idea here that I want to talk about together is what would it look like for us to become a community of discernment? I long for us, I long for me to become a person who is more discerning, who can see and, re- and kind of recognize and respond to the Spirit's work among, in, in my life, right? And I, and I want us collectively to become a community that is learning to recognize and not just to see it and name it, but actually respond and obey. Because that's the warning in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. He says, don't be like the Israelites. An entire generation, we're going to read in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, heard the voice of God and they disobeyed. And an entire generation fell, and it would be a generation, it would be their children that then go and enter the promised land with Joshua. He says, don't be like that. Don't be like the generation that heard and didn't obey. Hear and respond to the presence of God. That is what it means to become a community of discernment. So how do we do that? What does that look like? I I think that discernment on the road is essential for our ability to thrive as the people of God, and for our witness in the world. And and I think that a lot of us are asking these questions, whether we know we're asking these questions or not, um, about how to discern God's will. Like a couple weeks ago, I was preaching on chapter 33, where Moses says, if your presence doesn't go up with us, don't go, don't take us to the promised land. And we asked the question, would you want to go to the promised land if there was no God there? I hope the answer is no, right? And, and I said, I think finding God's will is more a matter of seeking his presence than trying to figure out the particulars of the decisions that we're making. And that struck a nerve. A lot of you came back and said, man, I want to I hear more about that. And so this is, in a sense, an attempt to continue that conversation and answer those questions a little bit more specifically because we are obsessed as Christians with what I'll just call, quote, unquote, finding God's will, I mean, there's so many books written about it. It, it, It's like, you know, for some of us, it's like this magic Ouija board that we're trying to like, I don't even know what a Ouija board is when I was growing up. Like, you get in a dark room, it's kind of weird with a board, and there's, you know, you shake this thing up, and the board moves, and it's it's crazy. That's how some of us approach God when it comes to life decisions. We're like, if I just get in the right position, in the lotus position, and get my antennas, you know, the right way, then I'll understand God's mysterious magical will or whatever. And we obsess over this. Because why? Because we live on the road. And, and life on the road is hard. Life on the road is complex. We have to make so many decisions on a regular basis, both individually and as a community, right? You are always making decisions. You're trying to connect what you know to be true about God and about life with the particulars of where we live in this moment, in this neighborhood, with these set of circumstances that we're facing. So just a sampling of the kinds of conversations that I have with many of you on a regular basis. You're choosing whether or not you want to be single for life, 
for the right reasons, uh, or if you want to be married. Uh, you're choosing what to do once you're married and it gets hard. Do I stay or do I go? Do I go to grad school or not? Which church should I attend? Do I stay in Indy or not? Because apparently everybody's trying to get out of Indianapolis at some point in their lives. It's like the cool thing to do for a little while. Uh, what neighborhood do I live in? What house do I buy in that neighborhood? Do I live north of 38th Street or south of 38th Street? Do I live north of 46 or south? East of Keystone or west of Keystone? North of 465 or south? I mean, like, all of these questions. What job do I take? What, when I get this job, do I stay in this job or do I switch careers? What kind of children do I want to have? How many kids do I want to have? Do I want to have a third kid or a fourth kid or even a first kid, right? Like, do I want to bring children into this world in the first place? And once I have kids, then how am I, I going to educate them? We have a whole room full of people in our conference room now, right now talking about school selection. How do I choose a school? Is it homeschool, private school, public school, classical school? Uh, none of the above. I, you know, do I, what, how, do, how do we do this? How does it work? And as you get older, like, just so you know, that doesn't stop. I talk to people in our community now that are caring for aging children that are caring for aging parents, that are caring for aging siblings who are sick with cancer. And life is full of choices. As a church, we also collectively are making lots of choices. How do we organize ourselves and our governance and our bylaws and all the things that you know, most of you don't really care about? How do we spend our annual budget? We have money that comes in. How do we spend that wisely? What kind of facility do we need? Because we, we continue to grow like this Chia Pet, you know, and it's like every time we send people out, we just grow again. And so it's crowded in here. And so what do we do? Do we start a third service? Do we build another building? Do we move somewhere else, right? We have all of these decisions. Is growth even good? Should we just tell a bunch of you to go away so we can stay small, right? Like, I don't know. Which ministries do we want to partner with, both locally and internationally? How do we organize community life so that we can have people growing in authentic community and in their relationships with one another and God. How do we disciple both families and single people? About 40 to 50% of our church is single. How do we do that well? There's actually a phenomenon uh, that probably you're familiar with. If you don't know the word, you know the feeling called decision fatigue. A lot of people have written about decision fatigue over the last decade. And as technology grows... And as kind of wealth and affluence grows, basically what that means is we have an overwhelming number of options. Somebody's estimated that the human person as an individual, so think about this like as a community, makes on average 35,000 decisions a day. And what happens, decision, decision fatigue basically means that as you make more decisions, your brain only has so much energy to make those decisions. So you know what I'm talking about, like four o'clock in the afternoon, you're done. Don't make any major life decisions at four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm just going to give you a little pro tip here. You're tired, you're exhausted, and, and that's why like potato chips start to look good around four o'clock or nine o'clock at night. You're worn down. This is actually a neurological phenomenon that's been studied. Your brain has a certain reservoir of energy, and once that's exhausted, you start making really bad decisions. And here's what we do, man. We live in a world where we have access to so much information that we want to research, and then we want to research some more, and we want to analyze we want to optimize, and then we repeat that process for 35,000 decisions a day. <laughs> Do you feel exhausted just listening to that? Yeah. 
the, the, the best way I can communicate is just a picture. Just like this is what decision fatigue looks like to me. <laughs> Enough said. So what does that produce in the life of a disciple of Jesus, a human being, but especially for us as Christians? Anxiety, right? Choice paralysis. Choice overload leads to paralysis. Like they've done studies uh, where they actually set up a shop uh, in like a, like a grocery store, and they'll have, uh, you know, 60 jams over here versus like five jams over here. And overwhelmingly, uh, the, the people that go to the one with less jams buy way more product. The other people are just like, ah, too many choices. Like we like choices, but then we can't make decisions about those choices. We get paralysis. We get apathetic. We get disappointed and disillusioned. How do we discern? How do we make wise choices? What's interesting is that discernment is actually a defining characteristic that set Israel apart from other nations. Moses goes on to write in Deuteronomy chapter 4, you will show your wisdom, God will show his wisdom and discernment to the peoples, who will say, surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. Now get this, what makes them discerning? For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call him? What makes them discerning is not the algorithms. It's not the decision-making processes they have. Now, I'm all for good decision-making frameworks. But you cannot decide your way out of decision fatigue. That's why they call it decision fatigue. We need a relationship. We need the presence of God. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't take us. Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Leadership, says this, For the Christian, being able to discern the presence and activity of God in ordinary moments, at the major choice points of our lives, even in the midst of grave difficulty, gives meaning to the human experience. This capacity to recognize and respond to the presence of God in all of life is a spiritual habit and a practice that keeps us connected with God's larger purposes for us and our world. Then we can give ourselves wholeheartedly to a deeper meaning for our lives, rather than being consumed by self-interest. We are able to align ourselves more completely with what God is doing in any given moment. So decision fatigue for a follower of Jesus has massive implications. If you don't feel connected to the heart of God, it's not only a matter of being inefficient or ineffective in your decision-making, it impacts your wholeness. It impacts mission. It impacts your ability to witness well in the world to your neighbors. So let me just, let me just issue like three invitations here as we think about growing and becoming a community of discernment. What does that actually look like? Three things. One, it is relationship before its outcomes. Relationship before outcomes. So notice in this story, uh, at the end of Exodus, what we see here is God inviting his people into a relationship. I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people. We're gonna move in together, we're gonna get to know each other, we're gonna live in a, in a relationship. That's what it means to know God. It's to have a relationship with God. It's communion with God. We've talked about this over and over again through the book of Exodus. 
He wanted to know them and them to know him intimately. And, and discernment starts always with relationship. So just, I want you to think about this. It's so intuitive, and yet we just don't do it with God. Any relationship, you don't start the relationship with outcomes. Like your first date, you're not going, okay, how many children are we going to have? Where do you want to live and move? Like that's where, the, that's where the girl quietly gets up and walks out, right, <laughs> and disappears. That's weird. Who does that? But we do that with God, right? We do that with God. But like we, we approach God like we would if we were meeting with our financial consultant or life coach. God, I've got these objectives. I've got these goals. Let's, let's reverse engineer starting at 80 and moving backwards and calculate all the compounding interest. Now, God, let's strategize and game plan. How do we get there, effect? Like, that's what we do with God. It's like, I've got a plan. If you can just help me execute my plan, that'd be great. Like, how does that work in marriage? How does that work with your kids? Kids don't operate on strategic plans. They are built to disrupt strategic plans. Relationships don't work that way. Like when Emily and I were first dating through our first year of marriage. Now, this is how a guy wants a relationship to work. I don't know about women, but for a guy, at least for me, I wanted Emily to tell me what to do. Would you, how many times I said this, sometimes out loud, I got smarter, and I used to say it more inside, please tell me what you want. I cannot read your mind. Please, would you please, like as an act of mercy, please tell me what you need. That's no good. That doesn't work for many reasons. But here's the main reason. Even when she told me what she wanted, it wasn't what she really wanted. She didn't even know what she wanted. Here's what Emily wanted. She wanted me to know her so well that I could anticipate. I'm still learning this. <laughs> She's in the 11. She can verify. She would say to me, I want you to know what I need without me having to tell you what I need. That's part of the game. Same thing with our children. We learn our children. We, we get to know them. You don't say to a two-year-old, what do you need? You just, you get to know them and you know over time to your, your, what your grandchildren need. And, and it's this relationship, right, where children are learning their parents and parents are learning their children, where our kids are learning to watch for our presence and respond accordingly. We are watching for their presence and attuning ourselves to their hearts, and then we are responding with grace and with mercy and sometimes with justice, right? But we're learning to become attuned to their voice and they to ours, to their purposes and they to ours, to their movements and they to ours, to the point where now, like, my kids know my voice. They actually, when your kids get to become teenagers, for those with young parents, they start to mock your voice. Like, that I have a thing where I clear my throat a lot because I have a throat condition. And my kids will be like, you know, and like, mock me. They can pick me out in a crowd. We heard you coming, Dad. I take that as a sign of love. That's what discernment is about. Discernment is about finding God before it is about finding out his will. Do you understand the difference? We find God first, or actually, he finds us. Then we learn his heart in a relationship and then we come to know his presence and his activity so well that it becomes an intuitive thing to respond to the voice and the purposes and the heart of God. It's not an algorithm. 
It's not a formula. It's not can't be reduced down to a Bible study or to church attendance or whatever. It's about who before it's about what and how. Let me say that again. It's about who before it's about what and how. It's about attention and attunement before it's about decisions and activities and outcomes. Ignatius of Loyola, who was the founder of the Jesuits, you know, Brebeuf School here, um, and he was a teacher of, spiritual, of a set of spiritual exercises that help people practice discernment. Here's his definition of discernment, so simple and yet so profound. Finding God in all things in order that we might love and serve God in all things. Finding God in all things so that we might love and serve God in all things. It's about who, before what, and how. So when I say who, I mean remembering, first of all, who is with us. That was the most important thing about life on the road for the Israelites. It wasn't about the destination as much as it was about who was present with them. Remembering who is with me and becoming aware of what he is doing throughout, as the author just said a minute ago, the ordinary moments of every day. The most important truth on the road to the promised land is that God is with his people. That's the most important thing for you to know in your journey on the road, is that God is with you. He's not abandoned you to the road, to the elements, to temptation, to despair, loneliness. He is with you. And that changes things. So you begin to ask questions like, how am I experiencing God right now? Instead of God, where are we going together? How am I experiencing God? How are we as a body experiencing God? Where is God revealing his love to me today? Where is he revealing his power to me, his justice, his glory in my life and in this community? It is about remembering every day, literally like the Israelites, waking up and going out to the edge of the tent and looking for the presence of God. God, what are you doing today? What are you speaking to me today? How can I hear your voice and just learn to respond? Like, how hard is that? And yet, how many days do we just wake up and we zip right out the house and we never do it? We don't do it in the morning. And if we do, it's a little five-minute thing. And then, okay, check. And now I can go out and do the rest of my, my work. We don't do it throughout the day at lunch and through the afternoon. Like, we, we don't do it at night. We, we don't practice discernment. It's as simple as remembering who's with you, seeking his voice, his presence. It's also remembering who you are becoming in light of who he is. Remembering who you are becoming in relationship to him. Discernment is not just about what you're doing, it's about who you're becoming. Donald Craybill says this, discipleship is usually not a grand calling or a spectacular act of martyrdom. Rather, it is a set of, I love this, Christ-like instincts and responses, reflexive responses of love. Now hear this if you're young, that gradually take shape in our lives over a period of years. We immerse ourselves in scripture and in awareness of his presence then, when we have to respond quickly to a life situation, 
we are more likely to act in a way that is a credit to our Lord. Christ-like instincts. You see, discernment requires ongoing transformation. It's not just getting the decision right. It's becoming the kind of person who makes a decision in line with the heart of God. I love his definition here of how this takes place. He says there's two things we immerse ourselves in. Scripture, so where is God present? How do we discern his presence? Where do we do that? How does that happen? Scripture, right? Truth, the reality of God. God speaks to his people and he uses words. So we find those words for us in Scripture. But it's not only Scripture, and this is where a lot of Christians miss it. It's also Spirit. It's also the presence of God who lives in us. Because last time I checked... The Bible wasn't written in 2019. The Bible doesn't give me a verse for who I should marry, right? It doesn't give me a verse for what job to take. So whose job is it to take that truth and impress it onto our lives and give us promptings, give us dreams, give us an imagination that's that's saturated with the reality of God? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. He will lead you and guide you into truth by taking Scripture and speaking it into your soul and into the soul of a community. Now, that makes some of us really nervous, but that is the absolute reality of the Christian journey. So it means that we pursue a relationship with God. We discern a relationship before we discern outcomes. It also means that we pursue surrender, a life of surrender over one of control. Like any relationship, there's, a, there's an abandonment that is terrifying with God, right? I have to abandon myself to a being who is more powerful than me, who knows things I don't know, who's, who's, who's wild in his ways, right? Mysterious in his ways, who can't be domesticated and put into a box and made into an algorithm that you can search on Google, right? Like, that's not how God operates. Notice here, when God moves, the people move. When the glory cloud stays, the people stay put, They're only going to arrive in the promised land in God's timing, by God's route, which is entirely at this point unknown to them. There's all this uncertainty, all this ambiguity, right? God's with them, but they don't know the destination. They don't know how they're going to get here. And notice the rhythm here. There's a rhythm to life with God, moving and stopping, right? So some of us are stoppers. We like to camp down. God's going God's gonna to dis- disrupt that and make you move. Others of you are movers and grinders and shakers, and God's going to say, hey, you need to stop. Slow your roll. <laughs> Moving and stopping, action and stillness, work and solitude. That's the rhythm of life with God. So I would just throw this out there. We need to move on. One of the biggest barriers to discernment is the need to control. The need to control life. This is at the core of what a lot of us like to call life planning. It's really just life control. (laughs) Our money, our relationships, our kids, our school, our career, we like to control, right? It's all about dominating. It's all about mastery. It's about manipulation and curating our certain reality for ourselves. And then we try to move towards that reality and manipulate everybody else to get on board with our life plan. That's kind of what we're doing, really, like in all of our relationships. Like, I have a vision for my life. Why don't you come and join me in this great vision that I have for my life? 
It's also at the core of a lot of addiction. Controlling our bodies, controlling our feelings, controlling our memories, controlling our impulses in an attempt to avoid what? To avoid failure, to avoid pain, to avoid coming face to face with our limits, our losses, our shame. We even run this kind of control scheme and it's so insidious with religion. So much of religion is rooted in control and power. If I can show up at church and I can pray the right prayers and I can read my Bible every morning for five minutes and do my utmost for his highest devotional and I can do the right things, then God will be contractually obligated to bless me with health and wealth and heaven after I die. But here's what happens. You live long enough, eventually, the illusion of control is punctured. Right? Some of you are there right now. Illness happens to everyone. Death is coming for all of us. Our life implodes. The things that worked for us in our 20s and 30s all of a sudden stop working for us in our 40s and 50s. We age we come face to face with our body limitations and our bodies begin to break down. And it can lead some of us to places of extreme bitterness, right? Rage, despair, because it seems like God has broken this implicit contract that we made with him at 25, this quid pro quo. I'll do this and you do this. And God says, I don't play like that. I don't make contracts. I'm God. When I move, you move. When I say stay, you stay. You see, surrender is at the heart of Christian spirituality. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, which implies not my kingdom come and not my will be done. That's why Jesus said in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this happen, but not my will be done, your will be done. That is the language of surrender. And it's also why a real relationship with the real living God is utterly terrifying to many of us, if we're honest. It is terrifying because surrender and submission, those are bad words in our culture, and sometimes for good reason. But, but surrender involves risk. Surrender involves vulnerability. Surrender implies powerlessness, and none of us like to feel powerless. And here's the thing, God won't be manipulated. He will not be controlled. He will not be domesticated. But let me ask you this question. If you're a person that struggles to surrender, which I think all of us do in different ways, to the Lord, what's your other option? Like Peter, like Jesus says to Peter, are you going to leave too? And Peter, in this great declaration of faith, says, Lord, where else will I go? Not exactly a great profession of bold, courageous confidence in Jesus. Well, I don't have any better options, so I'll stay here. <laughs> but what are your other options? Here, let me tell you your other options. If you don't surrender to God, you will surrender to the tyranny of yourself or the tyranny of society. Which sounds better to you? David Benner, psychologist, says this. The truth is we all must surrender to something or someone. If we do not become free in relationship to the something or someone larger than ourselves, and he's speaking here of God, we become unfree in relation to the tyrannizing powers within ourselves that we have inflated to godlike proportions. Surrender brings freedom. 
Surrender brings trust and love and openness and receptivity and flexibility towards the presence of God and towards other relationships with other intimate people in our lives. We cannot manipulate God's presence. We can only recognize it and respond to it and receive it. Real quick, third thing, community over isolation. Community over isolation. Community is the primary context for discernment. The reason we have decision fatigue is because we are making so many decisions in isolation. We are cut off, right, from other people. We're cut off from institutions. We're cut off from spiritual mothers and fathers in a way that they wouldn't have been. Like notice here in verse 38, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Everyone could see the cloud together. There's nobody going, did you see the cloud? Like, I I don't know, it's kind of like the sun hit at this weird angle. Like, no, everybody saw it. It was public for everyone to experience. God led them through the wilderness as a people in a very public way. Everyone saw together. Everyone moved together. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a people. He creates a pace and a pattern that brings unity and resilience and power and clarity When they receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, it falls on everyone. And then there's great power and unity throughout. There's not a needy person among them in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 13, the Spirit drops and they send out missionaries and there's a sense of unity in the church. Chapter 15, they solve a major cross-cultural ethnic issue and at the end it says, the Holy Spirit said that it seems best to us to go this direction and everyone was unified. Man, we need this kind of discernment. Right? The, co- the community of God should be a place where we can find and recognize and respond to the presence of God together. This is why God gives us the church. That's why you need the church, why I need the church. We need spiritual mothers and fathers. We need brothers and sisters. This is why spiritual formation is so important. Throughout the book of Exodus, he's talking about Sabbath. He's talking about prayer, these rhythms of life that we as a community must pursue together. If you're not honoring the Sabbath, for instance, you are impairing your ability to be a discerning presence for your brothers and sisters. If you are not praying, if you are not studying the scriptures, if you are not practicing the way of Jesus, it's not only about you not being able to discern the will of God, you are impairing the body from being able to discern God's presence and activity. And I am too. It is for the flourishing of the community that we learn to discern. And man, in a chaotic world with competing voices, we need to train ourselves to recognize and respond to the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of community. Thank you for the gift of relationship. You have called us into a relationship with yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. You've called us to be a, a community of discernment, learning to grow and recognize and respond to the leadership of the Spirit among us. God, we long to be that place. As we look to the future and we think about all that you've placed in front of us, we have so many decisions and choices to make. God, help us. Help us to become a wise and discerning people. 
not in our own strength with human wisdom, but God, because you are a God, as Moses said, who is near to us and longs to speak in a way that we can listen and respond with courage and faith and hopefulness, not with cynicism and despair and bitterness. So God, I want to close here just reading your words of Holy Scripture over us as we seek to become this kind of community. Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.